Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of Guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections and games that have soothed wounds. My guest today, I'm very excited to say, is Rich Vreeland, aka Disasterpiece. Um, for my money, he's one of the, the best um, sound artists, as he, uh, as he describes himself, working in video games today. He, of course, did the, the music for, for Fez and Mini Metro and Hyperlight Drifter, which came upon the show recently. Uh, I spoke to Alex Preston, the creator. Um, and, and just so many other amazing games. Reigns, which has just come out. Um, he's, he's, he's wonderful. And, and, of course, like he does other things. He's done theatre and TV. And uh, he did the soundtrack for It Follows, which was... Oh, wonderful. And and as he mentions in the interview, they're, they're currently, he's working with the director on a new film, which I'm very excited about. Um, yeah, it's a really good chat. We, there's some really sort of serious music chat as well, which I very much enjoyed. Um, like we, we, I mentioned this in the show, but when I was younger, you know, I was very, very involved in music. I was I used to be a DJ. I was in bands for many years. Um, and it was nice to have like a really serious conversation about kind of genre, uh, specifically about chiptune, because I'd never really spoken to a, a chip tune musician before and uh, and rich or disaster piece uh he he started out as as that you know before moving into making music for for games um so yeah really really good thoroughly enjoyable chat uh, i really dug it i hope and i believe that you almost definitely will too um i should have mentioned this last week really but it, it I, I didn't really slip my mind until it popped up in my calendar but checkpoints uh, officially turned two years old uh, during this past week on the the 12th to be precise so that's two years of uninterrupted uh, never missed a week I've, I've always made that my case i've been late a few times i've never missed a week um interviews with wonderful interesting people and honestly like it's such a joy um i've mentioned this to a few people i was having an email conversation with uh, a previous guest on the show recently and i was saying you know i i think I think everybody should have a podcast, basically. I think it's it's such a wonderful excuse to have such a a weird chat, you know? It, it, you'd never sort of say to a very close friend, hey, do you want to sit down and you can just talk me through your whole life? Um, that'd be weird, uh, which is a shame, you know? This is, this is a shame because it's such a wonderful thing. And I'm, I'm so lucky to be able to talk to such interesting people. Uh, and Rich is, is no exception. So thanks so much for listening for the past two years um the show's landing i'm going to carry on as normal uh i just felt it was like it was a milestone worth celebrating um if you're feeling you know kind and you know you want to celebrate the show also please do tweet about it tell your friends rate and review the show on itunes always looking for that high score and in this instance high score equals listeners so whatever you can do uh, to help boost that is always very much appreciated if you really like the show, of course, there's a Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. If you have the, the money and the inclination, every donation is uh, very gratefully received and, and is used purely to, to make the show better. If you want to get in touch, you can email. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding 
Uh, do follow the show, like the show on Facebook. It's all uh, very good. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's go on with the show. Formation of ideas, I suppose. Um, so let's do let's do a, a formal introduction for the for the sake of uh, keeping up appearances anyway. So, Rich. Welcome, so welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Sure thing. Um, so my name is Rich Freeland, and um, from New York, live in Los Angeles. Um, I've been. Um, uh, I'm a sound artist. Um, I work under the name Disasterpiece, and I've uh, done music and sound for video games, film. Uh, TV, sh- short films, theater, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, for the last maybe 11, 11, 12 years, and very successfully and uh, wonderfully, I might add. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna dive right in with a, a hardcore question, actually, since you you the way you described yourself made me think of it because you said you're a um, a musical artist, and obviously anyone who does music is a musical artist, but the those choice of words make me think that you perhaps think of what you do in a slightly different way than just a regular musician. Um, yeah, I actually said, um, I actually said sound artist, sound artist, which is a very, artists. yeah, yeah, it's a very, a very explicit choice of words because as I've, you know, I, as I've been doing this more and more, um, you know, I started to realize that not everything I do is inherently tied to music. Um, but I, it does tend to, it does tend to revolve around um, sound-related things, you know, whether it's a game and I'm doing sound design, or I'm, you know, developing uh, some kind of uh, interactive system for dialogue in, in a game, or, or you know, or music uh, of various various kinds. Um, well, it's interesting because I, I, when I, when I knew we were going to be chatting, I spoke to uh, a friend of mine, um, Sam. He actually does the the theme music for the show, and he's a he's a wonderful um, sort of video game music guy he's done a few uh, games with daco daco he's he's very good and i knew that you know he would have more of a an insight into that kind of world than, than i would so i asked him if there was anything that he was he wanted to ask you or things that he was curious about uh, your work and he had said um what do you think the the potential um of video game sound is to create an imagined world right so so you're not you don't have the, the technical limitations mean you don't have to rely on like beeps and boops anymore and you don't have to ape uh, a movie score so just the potential of of saying to create a world in a video game essentially is that something you think about oh absolutely uh what, what was the name of the, the the studio that he worked with daco 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 yeah they made um floating cloud guards and rotating octopus and scram kitty most recently they did a kind of on rails 2d shooter okay <laughs> Um, cool. I just wanted to take a note for myself. Uh, but yeah, um, I, uh, I definitely think about those things and I think, you know, the possibility space for audio and games is really, really large and it gets me really excited, um, to kind of branch out into new territory. And, and for me, um, when I sort of hit my, uh, when I sort of hit my, uh, ceiling as far as like, performance of different instruments and things you know I kind of presented myself with a choice you know I can continue to practice these instruments and get better or I can 
kind of set that aside and look elsewhere and see if I can find other ways to express myself. Yeah. So I got really, I got really into coming up with new, new sorts of, um, processes for myself to be creative. And so it led me down, you know, it led me down the path of experimenting with, you know, just the ways in which I come up with musical ideas, whether I'm using flashcards or developing some kind of esoteric system, uh, you know, a mathematical system, building. That a, that's a Brian Eno thing, isn't it? The flashcards. Is that a Brian Eno thing where he just takes inspiration from flashcards and reacts to those in the moment? I'm sure I've heard Brian yeah, Eno talk about that. It's definitely something that he he popularized, you know, when he put out the Oblique Strategies deck. Um, I wasn't actually thinking about that particularly, although I do have an oblique strategies deck. I was thinking more of like, you know, just using flashcards, putting information on them and coming and, and using that as like a device, um, you know, um, or using, you know, using like a deck of cards even, yeah. uh, to come up, just to come up with like some kind of system that, uh, helps you make decisions about how you're going to move forward. Um, and hey, so, can you, you think know, of treating... a specific example. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, I had a, I have a friend's. Uh, his name is Matteo Lugo, um, who's a composer in his own right. We work together on the game uh, Reigns, and um, he uh, he had a um, he would uh, he had a uh, a deck of uh, cue cards, uh, flashcards that he made, and each card just had uh, a key on it. Uh, you know, one of the twelve keys, um, and so um, I remember using this this uh, this deck to just experiment with different ways of coming up with melodies and chord progressions and things. And, and for a while I was, I was kind of trying to figure out a way t- to create, um, a completely like a chord progression that would use, um, this, the, um, kind of the, the techniques from serialism to, uh, create a chord progression. So essentially what, what that means is, you know, each, each chord would have notes in it that, uh, uh, have not been played yet. And, and, okay. and so you'd kind of, you, you'd kind of, you know, be able to lay out all 12 cards, uh, linearly, you know, and each, each chord might have two or three cards and then just coming up with like little sort of tricks and ideas about how, you know, how are these going to bridge to each other? And I just had all this laid out on the top of my piano. And I was that just sounds like it could out, turn like, into absolute chaos though. Um, well, it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle piece. I mean, it's a bunch of pe- puzzle pieces that I'm, I'm trying to figure put together to create uh you know a, a certain sensibility i suppose a certain gamified songwriting or music writing yeah 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 that's fascinating um and that's that's sort of i think that's sort of uh that sort of excitement that i have for that for exploring new creative processes um has led me down a lot of different um avenues and um I think games are a great, they're a great counterpart for that sort of thinking yeah. because a lot of games are nonlinear and, um, you know, when you have, when you combine the, the, uh, opportunity to do music and sound with, um, kind of, uh, I, I'd almost, I'd almost call it like the closest thing we have to magic, <laughs> Yeah. you know, like programming, which, you know, which kind of allows you to realize a lot you know can allow you to realize complex ideas and automate them um you know it really gets me excited about coming up with all kinds of um new ways of, of interacting with sound now 
that 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 is amazing and i'm i'm purely playing devil's advocate here but does that not lead to something i don't know like it seems to me that kind of removes a certain amount of emotion from it if you know what i mean like you know it's not the sort of classic playing from the heart it's it it's it feels like that would create something more cold like you said it's solving a puzzle as opposed to just expressing your emotion in some way well i i don't necessarily agree with that because you know the i i feel like uh i feel like you know that that sort of exploration of the creative process into you know in a more systematic way it it it's setting up the rules of, of how you're going to move forward. It's creating a, a, a sandbox. It's creating a, a, a set of limitations for y- you as a creative person to work within. So, yeah. um, you know, uh, you know, it, there's still a really large human element um, that often comes into play. And so, you know, there, that's where the emotion comes in. Yeah. You know, the, the, the creative process, if it's, if it's systematized in some way that that's going to create the the framework for, for the artists to like work within that. But then they have to yeah. fill that with, you know, they have to fill that with their personality. Absolutely. And so, um, it's just like, it's just like, how do I, how do I turn this on its head and, you know, come up with something new. And I suppose <laughs> with the, the kind of how broad a range of, uh, options you have, like creating these limitations is almost vital now in, in most kind of, art forms because you know there is literally a thousand things you could do with a, just a blank sheet of paper or a blank screen like you could do anything so it's, it's i think it's important yeah. to have some kind of limitation set for yourself yeah and you know the some of the projects that i've been working on uh games especially you know have have a very large possibility space on their own you know, just just because yeah. of the design of the game and so coming in you know it's important it's been important to try to assess that and come up with a, a complementary system that has uh, ha- has its own you know a complement a system that complements that possibility space without being so infinite that it's impossible to it's it's unwieldy absolutely uh, uh, and that's sort of a fine there's sort of a fine line there and um, I'll give a I'll give a good example of this um, I've been working the last couple months with a, a team based in London called sensible object and they're uh they're releasing a game called beasts of balance and uh it's kind of a software hardware hybrid game where you stack all these you stack all these animal shapes onto a platform uh that uh, interfaces with an ipad via bluetooth and it's a collaborative stacking game so you're stacking all these different shapes and based on how you stack them and, and, and the order in which you place them, uh, and there are these other shapes that modify those, those animals, um, you, you uh, introduce new creatures into the world, which is on, this, on the iPad. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you can also uh, crossbreed different kinds of animals. You, you can migrate, like you can migrate a bear from land to water and it becomes a water bear. Uh, and so there's this, fun. there's this, <laughs> it's very fun. Uh, it's very fun, kind of youthful game. Um, and the possibility space for the, you know, the kinds of animals you can have and, and the, uh, the sort of the, the makeup of your world is, is very, very large. It's very, very large. It's a very lo- large number. And so, uh, it took a little while, you know, that was a great, op- a great opportunity to do, to do a system that had a lot of ver- variety in it. But at some point, too much variety is a bad thing and it becomes unwieldy to, 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 to manage and to even think about it becomes, becomes impossible. So, 
you know, it's like, how do I, how do I stay true to the essence of, of this game? Uh, you know, the, the, the broadness, the diversity of it while still, you know, doing something that is, um, manageable. Yeah. <laughs> that's possible. You know, that's pragmatic. Uh, <laughs> no, it's crazy. Video games are like, I'm, it's one of these things that's come up a lot on the show. I'm always amazed that video games actually get made in any fashion. It's absurd. It shouldn't exist. <laughs> um, well, let's let, let's go back then, Rich. Let's wander down uh, memory lane. And if you can remember, uh, what was your very first experience of a video game? Oh, good question. Um, first experience. I think it might have been watching kids play maybe Mario Brothers 3 or... Well, it might have been earlier because my parents had a Nintendo entertainment system. And so, um, apparently, my mom was playing Legend of Zelda when she was pregnant with me. Oh, uh, how nice. So, so you imprinted from an early age. Quite, quite possibly. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting <laughs> that you say that it was your, your parents' um, NES because it's... I don't know... It, most any sort of video game console by default would belong to the child like ultimately but they you, yeah. it was very much kind of your parents that my, you my would par- play with my parents uh, yeah my parents are 24 i think when i was born or oh, okay, so uh, when i was conceived so you know they were pretty young and did that did that sort of did you grow up then in a video game household like did they continue playing games and you just kind of adopted their their hobby I don't think I really played video games until I got a little older. Really? Probably did. I probably didn't get it. Get well. By that I mean like maybe six, oh, okay. six or seven. <laughs> uh, and I think I was. Re- I think at that, around that time I was kind of reintroduced. I was introduced to it. Um, and uh, you know I had um, my dad and his cousins all were really big into football. And uh, there was a game called. Um, Tecmo Super Bowl, which is a really yes. great football game for, nin- for the Nintendo. Um, and that was one of the first games that I was really, really obsessed with. Um, and um, I think from that point on, I, you know, it became a video game household. And video games and computers kind of dominated my um, attention. And, uh, and, and drawing. Yeah. And graphic design. And, and then the internet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All this sort of stuff, and then all that sort of, yeah, yeah. But did you and music like, came late? Music came later. But did you, when you were playing games when you were younger, was it something you did with your parents? Do you remember a specifically a point where you would kind of branch out and be like, "I want this game," which wasn't just a game that would have been in the house? If you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I played a little bit with my dad, um, and I remember playing with like my godfather, who's one of my dad's cousins. Um, and uh, you know, and his brothers. Um, but for the most part, I, did, I think I mostly played on my by myself. Yeah. Um, uh, played a little bit with my sister uh, as well. Probably around the time I had the Super Nintendo, we had some like we had racing games and stuff. We used to play together. Um, but then it probably wasn't until uh, maybe when I was seven or eight. Is when I started hanging out more with other kids. Okay. And uh, um, you know they were all playing games as well, and so 
Um, you know, that's probably when I started, I don't know, playing more different kinds of games and playing games with other people. And what sort of the games of did you play with your, your friends? What was like the big hits in your, your friend group as a kid? Yeah, uh, in the begin, uh, in the beginning it was Super Nintendo and kids are playing a lot of Street Fighter, which I never liked. It's never my kind of game. Uh, Street Fighter, uh, Donkey Kong Country, uh, Super Mario Kart was a big one, and, and Zelda. Um, that was kind of the big, those are the games that I remembered very vividly. Um, what did you like about Street Fighter? Um, I don't know, I just, Fighting games were never really. Uh, the only fighting games I ever liked were um, the uh, Super Smash Brothers. Okay. I think it was. I, I think there was just a complexity to it that I was maybe. Uh, it just felt like it was over my head or something. I, I don't really know what it was. I think. I think maybe. Um, I was a. Li- I was a little bit. Um, uh, you know, if I if I wasn't. If I didn't excel at something immediately as a child, <laughs> I was like, "This is bad," or you know, "I don't like this." And I think, uh, I, I think I took, I took it for granted. I think I was, I excelled at certain things, and yeah. then so when I didn't excel at something, I was like, "Yeah, this is no good." <laughs> um, so, what are you gonna do? <laughs> what are you gonna do? So, how did the, how did your relationship with games sort of change or develop as you as you got older? Were you always kind of into them we always seeking out the new things or was it just kind of a, a kind of uh kind of background hobby if you know what i mean it was always a pretty big it was always a pretty big part of my life um probably up until you know up until i became an adult and then you know i kind of i think I've, since i've been an adult i my playing of games has been more spotty and sporadic you know i'll I'll maybe go through a phase where I'm playing a lot and usually it's because there's a game or something that I'm really into. And then there are other times when I'm just, you know, I'm focused on other things and I'm not really playing that many games. Uh, but I try to play, you know, especially because it's, it's such a big part of what I do. I try to play games that new games that are coming out that I think are interesting. Um, but like when you're a teenager or something, was there, was there a game that sort of came out or or a series of games that, that kind of, maybe changed your perspective on games a bit or you know made you take them yeah. more seriously oh okay well i mean I, I would say that so like uh ice hockey games okay. were always my favorite my favorite I, every single year you know i w- would be waiting to uh hoping that i'd get the, the the new the new version of the game for christmas so that was that was kind of a constant for me uh why ice hockey did and you I, play ice hockey i did yeah i played oh, okay. played as a kid and I play I played as an adult a little bit as well. Um, but uh, the game that really kind of blew my mind, I think blew a lot of kids' minds, was probably Super Mario sixty four. Yeah. Um, I just I remember I rem- remember the excitement and like the anticipation of of, of the Nintendo sixty four coming out. And I remember when it first started showing up in like department stores, and you could play it before it was out. <laughs> And there'd just be like crazy lines, like waiting to play it, and because um, it was just unlike anything that had. Oh, it was unbelievable! Know, it was just such a huge leap, uh, and it's it's an amazing game that it's still really fun to play. Yeah. Um. So many so many old games like you know have have not aged particularly well, and have some really sort of can be really difficult to play, and have 
these sort of draconian requirements, uh, me- mechanical requirements. Um, but Super Mario 64, to me, it feels as good as it's ever felt. Um, yeah, and it was just the, it was the whole package. It was the the controller as well and the analog stick. I mean, I've told this I've told this story on the show before, but the the Nintendo 64 was delayed coming out in in the UK by about a year. I think it was a really long delay. But I had saved up enough money to have one, and it was the first sort of console I ever bought with my own money. And I was happy to wait, and then the Saturn came out, and the PlayStation came out, and everybody was making fun of me because I was holding out all hope for this Nintendo game. And then I finally <laughs> got it on the day it launched, and I took it home, and it was unbelievable. I think I spent like a few days just just running around the castle with Mario, just with controlling with the stick and walking and then running. It was just... There was so much, so much in that game that was just brand new and exciting and just unbelievable yeah I, I had a very similar experience just remembering uh going to a friend's house we all just sit and watch <laughs> someone play super mario 64 oh, and the when the, uh, the paintings all rippled and you jump through them unbelievable <laughs> i still i still like it and it really it was such a a game changer for me like i just couldn't believe that this was possible it was it was amazing I don't know if I've had that kind of jump in, in kind of what video games can do like since then. Really, I mean, everything's kind of just been iterations on that to an extent. And obviously, yeah. they're amazing, but you know, there's just the, those kind of certain leaps that I think come it's along. It's hard to beat that. It's it hard really to beat is, that yeah. Particular leap. <laughs> I don't know how. Maybe, yeah. maybe VR. Like I've not, I've not tried VR yet. Um, oh, I think well, one of the last yeah, few people I mean, that hasn't tried VR. You, you might. Uh, uh, well, I don't want to. I don't want to project anything onto you, but my my first experience with uh, with the Vive was was close close to close to that sort of experience that I had with Super Mario sixty four. Um, just the ability, just kind of the you know my my first experience with VR was was the like the first generation Oculus Rift, which was really okay, really low fidelity. Um, it wasn't that it wasn't it wasn't very exciting or or satisfying to to be inside of yeah uh, and and you know to to kind of hold off at that point and be like all right i'll come at this later uh you know it wasn't like till five years later that i put on a put on a vr headset again and um, uh you know just the ability to walk around a space and to get low get high like tilt your head pretty much do anything uh uh is was just kind of a mind-boggling experience yeah. um i think I remember, I remember trying it for the first time, and I'm pretty sure I just had a stupid grin on my face the whole the whole time. <laughs> yeah, by all of, like all all of the reports I've had from people that that even with the well, actually, especially with the PlayStation VR, it's just been everyone's been delighted with it. Think it, think they think it's amazing, and these are kind of like grizzled, grumpy veteran video game players, um, and yeah, they, they they everyone's just entranced by it. I think I think it has a lot of potential. Yeah, for sure. Um, so what about music what like when you were you know you obviously sort of started learning music separately but was there like I I suppose like did you always think of video game music as a kind of it seems wrong to say legitimate but you know what I mean like was that something you would focus on thinking this is amazing and this is really good and would you dig into video game music or was that just video game music and then I'll I'll research real music over here if you know (laughs) I I think I think yeah, I know what you mean. I, I I don't think I put two and two together for a while, but but game music, uh, you know, soundtracks of certain games were kind of 
ever present for me. Uh, and I, you know, they certainly had played a big role in my, um, my feeling about those experiences and, um, how fondly I, I remembered them. You know, games like Super Mario RPG and Chrono Cross, games like that that I played, you know, as a teenager, um, you know, really, um, really stuck with me. And it wasn't until I was a little older, probably like 17 or 18, that I kind of realized that the music was a big part of that. Yeah. Uh, the, um, you know, all those, you know, stepping back into those worlds, you know, all that music just came rushing back. Uh, and uh, it was around that point that I, you know, I had started getting into music kind of outside of, of video games, uh, you know, more in the realm of new metal and um, classic rock and stuff like that, prog rock. And it wasn't, it wasn't probably until the time I was 17 or 18 that I kind of realized that it was all kind of related and connected. And, um, I started doing like, you know, video game remixes and, oh, amazing. Um, and, Not you know, chip music. Like, I, I, I winced inwardly when you said new metal then, but that's because I'm a total new music snob. And that was, that was the worst point of my music snobbery was when new metal kind of kicked in and uh, it's, 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 it's old, um, <laughs> teenage kind of angst coming out of me again but some of the musicality <laughs> well, I mean, was quite good it was just a lot sure. of lyrics was pretty awful exactly yeah and then that was the i mean for me at that point the musicality was was the only thing i really cared about absolutely I care yeah i honestly could have cared less cared less about the lyrics for better or worse i didn't really get into lyrics until i was much older um, um and especially as a guitar player you know i was just really into riffs yeah of course <laughs> and you know just dis- distorted guitar tone and all that kind of all that fun stuff so where did that where did the music come from then was it just like sort of classic i'm a teenager i'm gonna buy a guitar and start a band or was it more kind of um academic than that um it's a good question i uh, i think um i think i had kind of flirted with playing guitar as a younger person i had like a toy guitar that had okay. like it had like a had like an amp built into it and i didn't really know how to play it i would just sit it on my lap and like i, I think i knew how to play like a single power chord and that was really exciting for me as like a, a 10 year old uh <laughs> it's probably still exciting uh, and, yeah maybe <laughs> <laughs> um but i was surrounded by you know my sister was always musical, um, and my mom played the piano and sang, and my, my stepfather was music director at our church. So I was always like surrounded by, um, surrounded by musical people doing musical things. And so I think for me, you know, I was always, I always had a good sense of rhythm. I was always like banging on stuff or clacking my teeth or whatever. So when I finally, sorry. Yeah, like, (laughs) like, uh, hitting my teeth together to, to make, all sorts of rhythms like kind of like tap dancing with your molars yeah yeah no, that's, that's, that's kind of how good. i would describe it <laughs> um so when i finally came around to play, picking up guitar in high school um it almost felt like um i had all this like ground to cover uh in the sense that i kind of had all this like bottled up musical stuff yeah. that i hadn't really realized yet like i'd been surrounded by music but never really expressed music of, of my own and so probably from the time i was like 16 to the time i was like 19 or 20 i just had this like outpouring of of ideas musical ideas and just 
wrote a ton of music and um uh, i think i i don't know i i really came up to speed i think in in in, in certain regards just what kind just, of music um, though like just guitar stuff or we you did you start playing around on computers and using stuff like fruity loops and garage band and things yeah so it's kind of a complicated story but uh as a teenager i was into this hobby called e-wrestling which uh you would like it's creative writing like role-playing i am uh, fully aware of e-wrestling rich that is that's awesome to hear it's like dungeons <laughs> dragons but with a wrestling promotion but exactly on, on forums and stuff you got it that's yeah. exactly it so you know i used to i used to make graphics for people and um, i got into doing like entrance theme music and so Amazing. i had i had <laughs> i had like uh I had some kind of, you know, simple two track sound editor and I do, I wouldn't like make tracks. What I would do is find a song that I liked and had a cool section, like a, like a instrumental riff, riffy sort of section. And I would like cut it out and loop it. And, uh, I would make all these like entrance theme, entrance themes for, for different people. Uh, <laughs> that is amazing. Who was your, who was uh, your, your guy? Who was your created wrestler or was it not, did it not work like that? No, no, yeah. I had you don't have to tell wrestler. me if you don't want to. No, I'll tell you. His name, his name is Jack Bruce. Jack and, Bruce. Uh, he was a big bald guy. He was kind of mild after Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure ninety percent of them were in the, that sort of period. He, well, in the very beginning, uh, I was in I was in some wrestling federation. You know, some some of these e, e, e feds that uh, some of the people uh, some of the people controlled. Um, you know, actual wrestle like like like. Oh, I'm The Rock and yeah. I'm Hulk Hogan, and then other people just made up their own wrestlers. So it was weird because I uh, I was doing the Jack Bruce thing, and he I think I was using graphics of like Stone Cold Steve Austin, and then there was another guy in the in the same thing who was just Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> uh, it was pretty bizarre. That's amazing. That's quite interesting though, because like. Um... I don't know if you if you still follow wrestling stuff, but recently there's been um, a, a, a two guys called CFOs. Do you know who are CFOs? No, is that like a tag team? No, 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 no. They're they're musicians, and um, they've been brought in to kind of because especially all the WWF stuff. There was basically like one or two guys who did all the the theme music, and it was all very like like late nineties rock, basically. And they brought yeah. in these two new guys to kind of do music for like young up and coming wrestlers, and the the kind of the 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 variety of of themes now is amazing, and some of them are really brilliant, like really good entrance themes, and it's so diverse because and they cool. I imagine they were probably just like you as as a kid, like you know making theme tunes <laughs> for efeds and stuff, and now they're like oh amazing, we get to do real ones, and they're really really I'll, good. I'll have to check it out. I think I think what drew me to that is I mean I. Graphic design was kind of the first thing that I got really into, and, okay. and my favorite, my favorite aspect of that was always um, uh, making logos. And there's something about entrance themes that I think is kind of along the same lines. You know, it's like creating a creative identity for something. Um, and I think those were like a good, those are kind of a good foundation to to move into doing um, commissions Absolutely, for yeah. sorts of projects. So yeah. you weren't ever thinking about doing like video game music. You, you know, that was never something that you were like, "Oh, this is something I want to do." You were thinking about no, design. yeah, 
Yeah, I was thinking about graphic design until I dropped out of graphic design school to, to do music. And even at that point, I was like, yeah, maybe I'll be like a recording engineer or something. I don't really know how I'll make money at this. I just want to do it because it's fun. Uh, but um, around that same time, uh, funnily enough, I was uh, I used to post music on one of these e-wrestling message boards. And um, someone uh, someone posted like a wanted ad for music for um a cell phone game and um okay. i respond i responded to it with, with with some of my music and um that was kind of the first uh first game i ever worked on it was super random completely random and i'm, I'm assuming you would have been quite young at this point yeah i would have been uh i think that was like 2005 or 2006 so um i was about 20 20 years old yeah i mean that, that's crazy like for something that you know I mean, in retrospect, that's crazy because we've seen the career that you've had since then. But were you just thinking, oh, this would be a fun thing to do? You weren't. It was just another fun thing to do on the Internet. Basically. And I was going to get paid for it, which was mind boggling. And so did you like if you hadn't been necessarily preparing for that, did you kind of go back and sort of reassess video game music and try and think about how you'd approach it? Or did you just make Um, music? Well, after. I mean, I was doing, I was just making music that was inspired by video games uh, at that point and continued to do that for a number of years. Uh, I mean, even till today, it's still a big part of my sound probably, but, uh, um, that experience of, of writing music for a game was, was really, uh, interesting. And, um, it definitely got me thinking about doing, doing more of it and, and how, how could I, how, you know, maybe I could do this like on a regular basis and make make something out of it and you know i started to learn more about you know people uh people making games and that there are people who work in games who do who do music and do audio and and and, um so yeah it kind of it kind of set everything in motion for me and did you go to like university and did you think right i'll need to do this seriously and i'll go and try and get a degree or something well i was already in school uh i was already on my way to school I think I was already started at music school before I was thinking about this video game stuff. Um, okay. And so it kind of it kind of led itself to a shift in my focus. Uh, um, it, my focus became more about being a self sufficient producer of music. Okay. Uh, before it was more like I, I think I'll be a rec- recording engineer or something. Uh, and so that you know that was a big shift. And um, uh, there was also a video game music club at, at, at my music school and. Um, I got involved with that, and uh, you know, there was th- a video game of... music club at your school. Yeah, well, I went to Berkeley College of Music. Okay, um, so we had all kinds of music clubs. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, but I mean, of course, they would have that in in Berkeley. And so, what was that like? Like, how was that? Was well, it like think, analytical, think... or was it like jamming, or like what was the? How is it like structured? Well, yeah. Well, um, well, you'd think it'd be, uh, you think it'd be a, a no-brainer, but it was, it was founded by uh, students. It was a student-run organization, um, and so the students, you know, we had to, we had to kind of push it to the faculty that this is important, and uh, the faculty kind of, real, you know, they they started bringing in people who worked in games, and I think at this point they're, you know, it's it's moving into uh, permanent curriculum type territory where you know game audio majors and stuff. But yeah. uh, the the club itself was. Um, uh, we'd get together once a week and, uh, we'd have guests come in and talk about, 
you know, people who work in game in the game industry would come and talk to us about, you know, their experience and what they do and advice, et cetera, et cetera. And we'd we'd uh, we'd pull our resources together to learn about, you know, how you know how games are made, you know, what what's what's required, what's what what that entails. We'd find out about events in the area. Uh, the school I went to was in Boston, so there was a vibrant there's a vibrant uh, game community there. Yeah, totally. So we'd go to uh, we'd go to these like uh, events that that you know uh, in, in Boston. There's a, a Boston Postmortem, which is a, uh, a kind of a meetup that happens every month, and a bunch of people who work at different game studios, etc., go there. And so you know we just started going as a club, you know. Like, you know, five, ten of us would, would go to this thing every every month or whatever. And uh, so I started meeting people that way, hearing about different things going on in the community um, and just go to all these things and meet people. That's interesting. Um, that's, that's the second time that's come up in the show. I'm pretty sure um, Adriel Wallach, that's where she sort of first took her steps into game design. Was it that? Because she worked on... Do you know Adriel? She organizes the Train Jam. Um, I do know Adriel. Recently yeah. got engaged to Rami. Um, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's where she kind of first switched um, from working on satellites to making video games with those kind of meetups. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> I may have misremembered that, but I'm pretty sure it was around that Boston area. Uh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's obviously cool. an amazing place for, for music games as well, because you've got like harmonics who are the, the music video game guards. I mean, obviously, that's a bit that's a very sort of traditional version of a music game. But you know what I mean? Yeah, but even that at some point was not very traditional. <laughs> well, of course, yeah. Yeah. So was there any any sort of specific people that came in or, or kind of things that you looked at that kind of you felt really shifted your understanding or, you know, elevated your understanding? Uh, oh, people that came into the, the club. Yeah, just of that um, period, like something that, had, that sort of shifted you in some way. It was just really cool to hear from so many different people. Um, you know, Tommy Tallarico came and spoke oh, to amazing. us. Um, Jesper Kid did a video interview, came in and, and talked to us. And then we had, um, we started to get people coming in and teaching classes, um, about, you know, about game audio and their experience. And so, you know, I had classes with two, two, two teachers who had actually, you know, worked in games. And so they were great resources to kind of just get a sense of, you know, how, how, how does all this stuff work? You know, how, how do you make a living at this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and just kind of getting a sense for it because, you know, it's pretty intimidating to try to jump into something totally new like that. And there's a lot of, it's, you know, it can be very technically involved. And um, it was just, you know, really valuable to, to hear people, a lot of different uh, perspectives. And, you know, I think... It's such a niche I thing think, as well, though, because, like, it's like anything like that. I think you get into a certain niche and it's almost impossible if you don't have access to people that already do it to even imagine how you like where you'd even begin you know it, just just to have that example right. of people that already are doing it to be like okay that is something that is achievable then right it's like it's an institution in the process of being built absolutely and there was no real there's no real formal education available so a lot of it you know had to come from people who had the experience who had done it and were there uh -huh. any specific games you were playing at that point that kind of that that you loved like specifically like for the music or the the sound design um around the time i was in the club and doing all this stuff. yeah that sort of period because that's when you're sort of i imagine starting to take it a bit more seriously so there must have been were there kind of games that you looked at and be like i want to do things like that or that is an amazing example of sound design um that's a good question um so i 
I remember, you know, I was definitely playing uh, playing a fair bit of um, like right when I started going to school, I'd, I'd been playing a lot of Elder Scrolls, like Oblivion, and so the music was something that I, really fascinated me. And I remember writing, I remember writing sort of an analysis of of how the music was implemented yeah. in, into into Elder Scrolls Oblivion, and um, actually being being fairly critical of the implementation <laughs> uh like loving the music but being like this game is just impossible to, to 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 effectively score because it's just too it's just too big and too long um uh <laughs> and i remember doing an analysis of uh uh splinter the original splinter cell which was a game that i i played as well like when i was a little younger um but uh i guess uh, you know it's interesting because i i definitely got really interested in interactive music uh, yeah. sound design i think i came around to later um i didn't even really do any sound design until i had a project assignment to to do to uh sound design a um a clip from a film that was like one of the final or like a midterm project or a final project for one of my classes and that was towards the end of my end of my education but uh i found that um I found that I felt pretty comfortable doing sound design and that, uh, it was very similar to music in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, uh, and, um, so I kind of came to that late, but, 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 um, kind of, that was like kind of almost a separate journey where I was just trying to figure out you know, how much do I actually like doing this. And I, I worked at a, a game studio for almost a year doing sound design and, um, kind of realized that it, I liked it, but not, not that much and <laughs> not enough to <laughs> do it full time in that way. Um, uh, and, uh, one other game that I wanted that I wanted to mention, I think around that time was that I was really into was uh, Cave Story, um, okay. and uh, just just kind of the 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 way that it uh, managed to be um, respectful of uh, games that came before it while still managing to to feel fresh and new to me, um, and just just how iconic the music was. Um, I really appreciated that. I think that was uh, inspiring for me. And were you kind of seeking out kind of more indie games? Because that would have been around the same sort of time that the initial kind of indie game boom would have been happening, correct? Like kind of Xbox Live Arcade in the first instance. And that, you know, it's been kind of broadening ever since. But were you someone who would kind of seek out the kind of more niche things? Yeah, I think around that time I was trying to figure out how can I, how can I work on an indie game like Cave Story? That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just everything about that, everything I knew about that was inspiring. You know, that that one guy made the whole thing, and you know, uh, that it had blown up, uh, so that it was possible to do something on at a high level that could, you know, uh, be successful. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so, I I don't entirely remember how i got involved but um i started frequenting tig source which is a uh it's a uh independent uh games website yeah uh where a lot of independent game creators frequented and some still frequent um uh i started spending i started hanging out there a lot and uh hearing about you know competitions of people making games and, and just talking to people and um through that, I, I started working on a couple of small games for like competitions and things, um, and um, 
Yeah, I think, I'm trying to think of how, what else happened around that time. I mean, uh, I, you know, all, like all along I was, I was involved in a separate community that was like kind of related, but they didn't, the, the two communities didn't really collide until later. But basically like the, the chip music community was for the most part a fairly separate community from the independent games community. And that, that didn't, that didn't really change until, uh, I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know which That's year. That's weird, though. Like, why, why would they be so separate? Because you well, feel like they'd they... be more collaborative, obviously. Yeah, well, I think it's just a matter of, you know, one community was based around uh, creating games, uh, and it was very game-centric. The chip music community was never game-centric, uh, to my knowledge. You know, it was it was always about the music, and it was a different culture. You know, it kind of... It kind of, uh, I feel like it kind of spun out of the demo scene community of the early nineties. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the backdrop and, you know, that's, you know, those, those weren't really games. Those are kind of like, uh, it was like a format, like a, like a multimedia format, yeah. um, for sharing artwork. Um, I've never actually so- like known anyone that was involved in the, the chip tune community. Like, are there specific rules like uh, that, that seems silly but you know what i mean like a lot of the yeah the distinctions or the reason like early video game music is so distinctive is because of various hardware limitations you know the nes sounds a specific way the the mega drive or the genesis sounds a specific way because of their various chips so were like would you separate chip tune music into like uh genres based on that or was it just any kind of electronic glitchy sound will do well, it's funny that you asked that because that was kind of the central uh, question of the, the community for a very long time. Okay. Like, what is, you know, what is chip music? How do we constitute this? And there are always, you know, there are always people who are more like kind of hardliners who um, felt like in order for something to be chip music, it had to actually use the hardware from a, you know, from a console or, yeah. you know, like an old sound chip from a computer, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are others who just said, you know, it just, it just has to, it's a, it's a culture, it's a spirit, you know, it, it has to, it, you know, you know, as long as you um, say it's this, then it is this. If you're yeah. here, you're making music with us, you know, you're part of the community, it's chip music. So it was like, you know, it was a, it was a, a question of culture versus, uh, you know, some kind of objective, uh, uh, explanation. That's fine, though. People um, have been doing that with punk since the seventies, so you know it's, it's. I mean, that's one of those unresolved things. It's fine. That's a conversation that happens, I think, in so many facets of life. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Uh, and um, so, it's very yeah, hard I mean, to objectify anything that specifically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, because it's a you know it's a big unruly group of people that are um, self-identifying with this community. So it's, you know, it's, it's something different for every, everybody. Um, <laughs> Much like the, the politics of our day. Um, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to break off and do a couple of uh, relatively quick fire questions. Uh, is that good? Are All right. Good that? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, Rich, what game are you best at? If you had to play a game with, with death for your soul, what would you choose? N- NHL 94. 
specifically 94? For Sega Genesis, yeah. Why 94? Was I, that just a, a peak just year a, for you? It's it's a game. It's a it's uh, widely uh, viewed as the best uh, the best NHL game of the you know the pre pretty much the pre 2000s. It's it's widely regarded as the best NHL game that was available, uh, and um, it's really quirky. It's the the, the players slide around. Um, I just played a lot of it, uh, and I'd I'd go back even as new NHL games came out. I was always going back to that one, um, <laughs> and uh, I don't think I've lost. Um, I, you know, I'm always, you know, I'll like if it comes up in conversation, I'll be like, oh, we should play it, you know, because <laughs> I don't think I've lost. A, I don't think I've lost a single game of NHL '94 in like over a decade. Okay, okay. I was gonna say I thought you were gonna say ever. Then so I don't believe that, but no, I, that I yeah. could I could believe that. Do you still play any yeah. of the NHL games now, like the the new? generation of them you know i was playing every single year um up until probably like 2000 ish and then i started skipping years here and there and then more recently i skipped like three or four years but i i picked up the, the newest one and here and there i play it every now and then okay um what game if if uh, if you're prone to such things what game has made you rage quit the worst Oh, that's a good question. Uh, hmm. Rage quit game. Oh man. Well, I could say NHL, but that's. You can. I mean, any, I I have I've I've definitely had some episodes rage quitting from playing NHL games where I felt the AI was unfair or something. Uh, it probably was. It probably was really <laughs> unfair. I'm trying to think of other examples though because. Or, or you know, an example of a particularly elaborate rage quit. No broken controllers or screens. Oh, you or know discs. what? You know what? I, you know what I'm remembering? Um, uh, in uh, 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 Psychonauts, there's this level. Oh, the meat circus. The meat circus level. Oh, it's the worst. It's just, it's so bad. It's so unfair. Uh, it's just cruel. Uh. <laughs> Thankfully, it is right at the end of the game, so you've kind of you've experienced all the good stuff. But yeah. <laughs> I, I know countless people that, you know, I, I still think Psychonauts is one of my favorite games, but I've never completed it. Me- and I don't intend on doing it. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite games too. But you did Love finish it game. though. I think I stuck it through. <laughs> <laughs> Snapped a few discs, but it got there. In yeah, the I was like, how did they think this was okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they actually did, they did a, a, a stream. I was going to say recently, it was probably last year, but time time flies. And uh, I remember that, yeah. With the, with the, the speedrunners playing Psychonauts, um, and it was amazing that. because they just they amazing. made mincemeat out of the well, excuse the pun, they made mincemeat out of the level, and they're like, oh yeah. my god, this is unbelievable. This is easy, no, no yeah, problem. Of course. <laughs> um, has there ever been a game that kind of you've had to walk away from or uninstall because it was starting to take over your life? Sure, World of Warcraft. Ah, oh, you did play. Uh, yeah, I played that for about six months. And uh, reached a point where that's a brief the returns. <laughs> yeah, I've, brief. I've got friends that uh, have lost years to that game. I don't understand that. I mean, well, I guess, I guess for me, I wasn't as community oriented playing that game, and I think others, you know, d- d- had a more social experience. Yeah. For me, my experience playing that game was I had just moved to, just started college, um, and uh, my social circle was all the people in my on my dorm floor the floor of my dorm 
And so everyone went out and bought this game. And so um, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have a social life uh, there. And so <laughs> that required me to and have a social life. Yeah, it required me to buy this game. And um, I think I was thinking, oh, this will be fun. You know, I'll be playing the game together. It'll be awesome. But what actually happened is that everyone kind of was playing at their own pace. And so, you know, my roommate was playing and he was like five levels ahead of me. So we we never, you know, we could never do any quests or anything together. You know, it was just like I'd see him and, in, in you know, I'd see him in Iron Forge or whatever, <laughs> you know. And uh, he'd be like, you want a duel? I'm like, you're going to kick my butt because you're like <laughs> 10 levels ahead of me. And so it was like a, it became a race, essentially. Everyone was like racing to level 60. And, uh, by the time I got to level 60, um, I don't know, I, I was, I probably played the game for like a month at level 60 and it just, it just kind of lost interest for me at that point. I'm like, why, you know, what's even the point? Uh, have you ever been tempted one? to go back? Um, I have a couple times actually gone back and thought, oh, this will be fun to get back into this. Um, but basically, you know, I played for a couple hours and I'm like, you know, this game, uh, it, it's like a vicious, uh, it's like a vicious cycle. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the gameplay loop is, is very shallow. Uh, and it was, it was hard not to notice that on repeat plays. Um, I was I've like, I don't really care about it pl- purely for that reason, because I knew that I would, it would hook me. I am prone like, to such you... things. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what's the point of, why would I want to keep collecting, you know, or go find this thing and give it to me or, uh, it was just like, it felt, it started to feel extremely Pavlovian to me. Yeah. As, and I was like, I need to get out of this. So, uh, I think I'd logged somewhere between two and three weeks of, uh, of gameplay time. So it was also ruining my life, uh, <laughs> because I was playing, I was playing until like seven in the morning and then getting up and, you know, playing from like 5 p.m. to like, you know, the middle of the morning the next day. It was, it was Good times. Just, Oh, oh yeah, I and I I did a very dramatic like when I when I was leaving the game. I, I remember I was like in uh, in Iron Forge, and I and I like you know made a public announcement that I was like I'm getting rid of I'm leaving the game. <laughs> I like I like stripped down naked and like I was like you know I'm giving up all my stuff. <laughs> so the speech at the start of Jay Maguire. Yeah, so who's with me? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> and everyone's like, Ooh, can I have this? Can I have that? Uh, and. Uh, that was it. That's that's bold. I like that. Um, on the on the sort of subject of kind of the things of humor, has a game or can you think of games that have really made you laugh? Um, before jumping into another game, I mean, I, I definitely had some moments playing World of Warcraft that were really funny. Uh, you know, people would do really silly things in that game sometimes. Uh, I remember. I think it might have been someone in my my dorm who uh, decided that that uh, we should all make characters gnome characters that had names of Pokemon, and we would do like a a parade, <laughs> <laughs> like a parade through uh, the one of the areas I can't remember, like a parade from like this this you know the starting village all the way to like the main city, of, and there were like forty of us, uh, <laughs> and uh, then we'd all like commit suicide. Uh, we'd all like jump into a brassiere or something. <laughs> uh, but no, it's, it's a tricky one. That's why I ask because I think of all the things that games have managed to do, especially in the last ten years or so, like being really funny isn't necessarily one of them. 
Yeah, it is. It's definitely tricky, and I think a lot of a lot of the fun and humor that uh, I've experienced in games has been has been because of other people, like playing the game That's at the same fine, time. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like uh, playing like um, Super Pole Riders is a great one. That always makes me laugh. Um, yeah. Are you are you a competitive person? Are you a competitive gamer? Do you get very competitive? I, I am extremely competitive, uh, and I have very, uh, I have a very short fuse for what I what I feel is uh, uh, mechanical injustice, <laughs> like some kind of, you know, some kind of AI or, or, or some kind of feedback that doesn't feel right to me. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely get, I definitely get pretty, can get pretty uh, intense about. What about with other people though? Do you have like rivalries? Like epic high score battles, etc. <laughs> uh, not that I, not that I can remember. Um, certainly, and certainly played. Oh well, actually, I mean, in high school, the only game that we really played competitively is was Halo. Uh, um, so there were definitely rivalries revolving around that and um uh were you good and i wasn't the best um i was i thought i was good (laughs) (laughs) i thought i was good i don't know if i i don't know how good i actually was yeah those sort of things like it's hard it's hard to tell like i always sort of say to myself if i'm playing an online game now like something like overwatch i play a lot of overwatch I think, oh man, if only yeah. this game had come out when I was like 18, I'd be amazing. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I don't know if certain things are just kind of pre-built. My reflexes aren't right. that bad. Right, if it came out then and you'd just been playing it this whole time. Then... Yeah, maybe Yeah, maybe if I'd maybe. been playing it for that long, it'd be fine. Um, so, I want to talk, I, I suppose like the, the big game for you was, was Fez. Like, that, that seems to be the game that's put you on, on the... I don't know where it put you. Put you on the map, I suppose, is the best. A, way ma- to put a map of some kind. A map yeah. of some kind <laughs> of some of some uh, niche niche world. Um, yeah. So how did how did you get involved in that? Because I know you did quite a lot before then. Was it just kind of a gradual progression? Yeah, I think uh, I think they were um, aware of me already, um, but I was I was touring uh, at that point um, with this crew out of Boston. We were doing shows. Was in that like chip tune stuff? Yeah, it was chip music stuff um, in and around the Northeast, and we we played a show in Montreal, and that was like fall of 2010. And uh, the programmer for Fez was at the show, and so I met him after my set, and uh, we just talked about the game. And I think they they'd wanted to do kind of a compilation soundtrack, and um, I thought I thought the game because and, and maybe especially because it had such an altruistic quality to it, I thought. I thought having uh, an original score by a single person or a single entity would be yeah. would be more interesting. And so, what, um, what were you what what were you touring as? Like, what was the the band? Uh, at that time, it was Disaster Piece, and it was just me playing guitar uh, over backing tracks. Okay, but uh, there was a period of time where I I uh, had a drummer with me. Um, this guy Roger, who goes by Recadam. Um, and he's a he's a he's a, a great musician in his own right and a game developer. And um, we we did shows together as Disasterpiece for probably four years or so. 
And how did that come about? Was that just for the love of because you're involved in the chiptune community and just started playing shows? Well, my yeah, my primary exposure to chip music was online and in forums, and then yeah. realizing that that uh, live shows were also happening. And and I lived in New York. I grew up in New York, so there was a pretty um, well known chip music scene there. One of the one of the most well known ones that revolved around this this label, this net label called uh, uh, Ape at Peoples, and um, so there were shows happening uh, nearby, and so I went to my first chip chip music show with my dad in 2005, maybe. So what I was, did your dad I make like, of it? He thought it was cool and interesting, and uh, it's funny because there are like, it's the chip music scene is, you know, kind of uh, it's kind of all over the place. You know, it's a very diverse group of people. There are like old people. Young, really young people. Um, so I think he thought it was cool. That's good. But like to to be able to tour, at, like as a band, like that's quite a bold move. Like, had you built up quite a, a fan base by that point, just online and things? Well, I mean, it wasn't like a tour. Tour, you know, we would we'd like it was like one-off shows that were in different places. But w- was you it know, like, like I think what I'm trying to say is that was it people were coming to see disaster piece or were people coming to see a chiptune show with a bunch of bands on it was more the latter okay you know just as part of a community uh and you know this this sort of chip music thing was becoming more popular in small circles i mean the shows were never rarely huge they were usually really small intimate settings um which was it was fun it was fun and it, and it 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 was very intimate, you know. You got to got to meet a lot of people, yeah, uh, who were enthusiastic about chip music. Went to all the shows, and pretty much every most of the people who went to the shows made their own chip music and got involved. Um, so it was a very DIY sort of culture. Absolutely, and uh, like this is actually just just occurring to me now. Like, is there is there a different? I mean, I'm I'm assuming there must be a different approach when writing something for essentially like live performance as opposed to writing something for a game totally uh <laughs> um i mean i mean you could do you could do all sorts of improvisational non-linear type things live but for me i think live was never a priority for me it was always something that i just did and so it, i was never like completely happy with what i was doing yeah. whereas i think i think with recorded music I felt like I could I could get to a place where I, I I was proud of it and happy with what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, live was always more of a struggle, and so you know I tended to do uh, I tended to play, you know, linear my linear music, uh, whether it's whether it was original material that I had written outside of games. Um, that was mostly what I played. You know, I released a string of uh, like concept albums, like very heavily prog rock influenced chip tune chip music slash prog rock concept albums uh between like 2005 and like 2010 2011 um so i played a lot of that music which was very you know it was very riff oriented lots lots of riffs guitar riffs and and melodies and the odd meters and like but that. to be fair, that was like a lot of, you know, actual early chip music was exactly that. Like purely because of the limitations and stuff. It was it was hooks and loops. 
and yeah, that's it was what really drills good. into your brain. I mean, it was a really good tandem. It made perfect yeah. sense to me. It was it was the culmination of all the things that I found interesting, which was you know riff oriented music and minimalism, which I got really big into uh, right around the time I went to school, and uh, video game music. You know, all these all these sort of uh, uh, kinds of music that were. I don't know, arbitrarily limited in certain respects. But then, you know, you had this like prog rock construct, which was like, you know, just write, write through composed narrative music that doesn't, yeah, doesn't adhere to, you know, verse chorus. Uh, so it was, it was kind of an interesting way, like a, it was an interesting way to confine myself in certain ways, like production wise, but yeah. compositionally, like anything, pretty much anything goes. Uh, and like with all of that feeding, like I mean, I mean, do you feel personally that kind of all of that kind of coalesced when you were working on Fez? Like that was kind of a like a, a leveling up almost. Like okay, here's I've I've got this now. I'm good at this. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a new thing for me. Fez. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of a culmination of everything I had done up until that point, which at that point was mostly prog rock chip music. Uh, um, but you know, I had started, especially being in school and stuff, I had started dabbling more in production and synthesis and learning, learning new stuff. And I kind of, I kind of realized around that time that, um, I, I found a new methodology, like a new method of making music that was, uh, really immediate and fun for me. Like, and that was kind how, of this. How was that? What was that? Well, it was just kind of this idea of coming up with like, a simple idea like a hook or something and then and no drums or anything and then just you know having like three or four tracks and just putting a lot of energy and effort into the the sound of those tracks um and every, you know it was the music was all really short yeah. uh generally generally you know a minute to two minutes um and so i was and i came up with a production uh workflow that was pretty straightforward as well and so i was able to make music for that game really really quickly and even to you know even till even to this day like if i wanted to go back and make like a song from fez like in that style i could i could you know knock something out in probably like an hour or two because it's a very you know half the battle was figuring out what is this thing going to sound like yeah and do you do that Uh, like for every every project you work on do you kind of set yourself a kind of a workflow and a methodology specifically for that thing pretty much always even if the methodology is like intentionally loose or open i mean it's still there's still a methodology in place uh or there's a you know there's a there's a journey in the beginning of a project to figure out and discover what the methodology is like what what is the essence of this project and how you know how am i going to you know what what am i going to adhere to while i'm trying to make make this stuff and but where do you um take your your cues from for that like is it i mean i'm assuming you'll get to play the game in in some fashion or is it like images or is it do you know what i mean like how do you decide on the type of music the type of tone you're going for when you've got the raw materials of a game in front of you i try to i try to take in as much information as i possibly can so i can make the best decision the decision is usually some combination of you know uh, some combination of logic and, and intuition, uh, like most things, I, yeah. I guess. Uh, um, in early on working on games, 
I was often quite removed from the process, you know, dealing with middlemen and uh, as a contractor, you know, yeah. where someone just is throwing screenshots over the wall to you, you know, make some music for the screen, you know, that this is a level and make some music. Here's a screenshot. And then just kind of having to imagine how this even works. Uh, over time, you know, I, I learned through that process that uh, your ideas and the things that you make will be implemented incorrectly if you're not like close to it you need yeah. you need to you know because the, the context is all lost on both sides so pretty early on i learned I, I realized that i i wanted to be embedded as embedded in the process as possible and that's something that where in the first year or two of working in games i i, I had two or three very different experiences that kind of represented opposite ends of the spectrum on one hand i had this experience as a contractor with a with a middle with a, a middle agency that was they were great but you know uh i didn't have i didn't really have direct access to the development of the game the source code the the team so you know i'm just working to screenshots and then when the game comes out is when i actually finally hear my music in context and it's the context has been changed for me in a way that maybe you know i, I didn't agree with um, yeah and then and then on the other end of the spectrum um i did an internship at mit uh, where a bunch of students were put together to try to solve an educational research question. Uh, and I got to head up the audio team uh, for that project. And I was embedded in the creative process from the very beginning as far as like helping prototype and figure out, you know, what, what is this, you know, what's the game going to be? How does this look like? And, you know, what's the audio impl implications? And, um, you know, just having a lot of autonomy and control over my work and how it's going to be used. And, um, that was such a cathartic experience for me. Uh, and, and after that, I knew that from now on, I have to be, uh, embedded in the process. Yeah. And if I'm not, it's, you know, I'm, I'm going to be unhappy. What was the MIT game? So, uh, I worked on this pair of games called Waker and Whoosh, and they're essentially the same game. Uh, the game is a platformer where you, you create platforms for yourself, ramped platforms to okay. traverse the level. And you create these platforms by, uh, moving around. And so the, 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 the idea was supposed to communicate mathematic concepts, um, such as, uh, velocity and displacement and, uh, acceleration. Um, I think we might have scratched the acceleration one, but basically you move left, you move right. It, it, uh, you know, it kind of changes how, how you're drawing a platform for yeah. yourself to, to make it through the level. Um, and one, so one version, sorry, one version, Waker version was like with a narrative. Okay. And Wush, Wush was the same game w with all abstract, uh, elements. And so that was like a side research question, which was like, you know, does, the usage of a narrative, uh, how does that impact uh, people's ability to learn something? That's interesting. Was there a conclusion from that? Because I, um, I love that question. You know, I feel like I should know. I should know the answer to that, but oh. I don't remember. <laughs> it's, it's just it's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's again, it goes back to like the, the chip tune thing of like, how do we define this? Like, um, it's a thing that's come up on the show a lot, like the whether or not a narrative is necessary in a game, if a game is better when it's just purely a game and narrative is just like bonus material. I don't know. Yeah. It's tricky. 
Um, so, like, as you've kind of gone on to, um, I, I would say, uh, a successful career so far in in uh, as as a, a sound maker. Um, do you like are there specific games that have come along like since you've been doing this more and more professionally that has, that have shifted your um, understanding of, of game music or just you know very much impressed you? Um. I, there, yeah, there's always there's always stuff that comes out that really uh, blows me away um, and um, I think humbles me, <laughs> you know, like just just wow, that is just amazing work that uh, I'm just in awe of, you know, how they made that and just the ideas that other people come up with. Yeah, um, I mean, someone someone that fills that role for me is is uh is um is uh Tomas Dvorak who does the who works with uh, Amanita Design um you know did did the uh did the music for um Machinarium and uh oh, Samuro, 3 yeah um just the way that that uh, that whole team kind of um you know the way that they integrate music and and sound is is very um it feels very different to me and, and, and inventive and fun, especially Samros Three. Like the the way music is integrated into that game is really, I, I find it really beautiful. Um, uh, just you know the whole the whole concept um, of you know having a horn and you know listening to the environment and like you know turning those ideas into melodies and just just all the little things that that, that go into that were really really inspiring for me. Um, and then, you know, as far as like, uh, just from a, um, well, there's, there's other stuff too. Like I, I feel that way about, uh, when it comes to like aesthetic, uh, I feel that way about things like Kentucky Route Zero, which I feel like the aesthetic of that, the, the audio aesthetic is just brilliantly, uh, suited to the, the overall vibe of that game. And, um, the same thing for Inside, which I thought was really, really special. Uh, aesthetically, like the the work, um, it's so subtle and so effective, um, and just a lot of sounds that I just couldn't really pinpoint. Like I, I couldn't identify them. They were very, very unusual in in a in a, uh, in a gratifying sort of way. <laughs> Do you find yourself doing that now? The more the more games you've worked on, that you start to kind of get distracted almost by how you're you're kind of pulling apart the sound design and the the music and the samples they might have used. Um, not really. Um, I try to, I try to limit that sort of aspect of myself when I play games because I want to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to, I want to experience the, uh, I want to experience the game. Uh, but, you know, I'll go back and maybe re-listen or, 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 you know, process those things after, think about them. Um, oh. and are there some games, some games are, so, are sort of, uh, you know, you, you don't need to, you know, like a game like Samarost is, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's slow paced. You know, you don't need, it doesn't, it doesn't demand your attention at all times. So that was a game where I could kind of sit back and just kind of listen to what they're doing and stuff. Yeah. And indulge in it almost. Exactly. Um, I, 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 we'll finish up in a, in a bit. I, I'm really keen to ask you about, um, it follows and also like, 
I don't know. There's something about like the the music that it follows, and in general, like recently, there is a, a resurgence of this kind of '80s kind of John Carpenter-esque kind of synth sound, and which I think kind of maybe shares not a similarity, but a similar kind of uh, feeling it evokes with with chipchy music. There's a certain sort of nostalgia with it. Do you do you feel yeah. like they go? together like were you aware of that working on it follows because it is very much it feels like a kind of a throwback but with like a modern twist essentially yeah you're asking if th- i feel like there's a nostalgic similarity between uh yeah, between like it follows and and the chip tune basically the, because it's the same sort of it's harking back to a similar sort of time well maybe not exactly a similar time but you know what i mean they're both kind of representations of of past I mean, I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's always a tricky question. And I, I, I think I have, um, I think my opinions on this matter tend to, I don't know. I, I struggle with this a little bit because I, I feel like, um, there's when you're dealing with something that people, people lean towards be, because of a, a nostalgic reason, um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be creating something just because it's nostalgic like and i I think there's a tendency i think there's a i think there's a a fine line to walk between something that is you know wearing its influences on its sleeve or is uh honoring something from the past yeah um and then you know just kind of reappropriating it in a kind of a way that i would say is you know either lazy or kind of shallow um yeah i mean i don't i think i think it's a tricky one because like with both chipchi music and with um kind of like classic kind of synthy scores they were both in their first incarnation the very first incarnation of them so if, right. if they if you're going to do another version of that now because you like how the sounds sound then i think automatically it's going to be a callback because there's only one yeah. specific place where that that has been a kind of part of mainstream culture before if you know what i mean yeah, and it's going to be a callback for people, even if it's not for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think I think that's a really big that that's a really big part of the chip music community. There are a lot of people who are doing things or have done things with that sound that they wouldn't. You know, they they're they're different. They're new. They're not something that would really happen. Would I'm sure there's kids playing chip tune now that never have zero nostalgia for it. Like it wasn't something they grew up with. Kids who would have grown up playing PlayStation yeah. and CD-ROM and stuff—they yeah. just like how there it sounds. Pe- yeah, there are people who have stumbled into it and be like, "What is this crazy thing?" You know, and they don't really have that—that that strong. This, they don't have that strong um, uh, personal experience with that sound, maybe, and so they're kind of discovering it for the first time. Um, but you know, I think, I think there's a uh, speaking generally. I think you know, there's there's a tendency to. Um, automatically put things like anything that has synthesizers in it and uh, you know whether that's you know uh, whether that's like you know Game Boy or whatever or you know like a like a subtractive synthesizer there you know there's a tendency to generalize and kind of just put those things into the category of oh this is you know 80s whatever and um, I mean I understand that people do that to uh, they're, they're trying to, um, uh, express something, but, uh, for me, for someone who's been so deeply involved with it for so long, I, I feel those, I feel like those classifications are fairly shallow. Um, and yeah. they don't really do, 
they don't really do justice to the the, the potential and the, the 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 variety of things that you can do with those sounds. Um, and I think uh, it is like it kind of throws back it goes back to what we were talking about at the start, where it's you know they they are almost purposeful um, limitations. You know, it, there's a, it's not just yeah. using a synth; it's it's using it in a minimalist way. And, and the same yeah. with chip tunes, you're working within constraints to create something. I think. Yeah, which, I would. Which I would immediately, you think, oh, it's a throwback because it's purely because that was the limitation, literally at the time. Yeah, I, I was always inclined to argue that um, something like chip music or even synthesizers, you know, they they were kind of uh, they were genre defying. Uh, I mean, yeah. uh, chip music is a chip. I mean, uh, I think people generally can agree that chip music is like is. Uh, defined by uh, the limitations and the um, the specific sounds, but the, the musical structure, uh, the other elements that are involved, like none of those things are homogenized at all. Like yes, it's, it's it could be anything. It could be you know people people put chip tune together with uh, like Beach Boys type aesthetic or like uh, like like. Uh, like breakbeat or like bebop or like heavy metal like there's all sorts of stuff um that's just pulling from all different on all different uh uh genres yeah. so there's, to, there's to say all to pull from there. it's extremely broad so it's you know it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to put something like chip music up against you know rock or yeah. jazz it's like a genre it's not really I mean, it's a classification, but it's like it doesn't really play by those same those same rules. Actually, no, I'm curious about about it. Follows like purely from the spending so long working on games. Like, how did that come about, and how how did you kind of how how was the process different? Um. Well, the director David played Fez, and okay. uh, e- and he emailed me, and the rest was history. Uh. It was different. I was hoping for a more you know, exciting it, story than that, but that's absolutely fine. It's, sometimes yeah, life just happens like that. Sometimes life is not that exciting, I guess. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, the process itself was grueling. We had about three weeks to score the film, and um, uh, but it was fun, and um, you know, I had a lot of help with kind of the structure of things. Yeah, the editor Julio and David, you know, they they kind of sat down and and given the time constraints they they had kind of crafted a uh an emotional quality and you know through using temporary music uh with the film to kind of give me a sense of tone and yeah. uh you know emotional what conveyance like what it's trying to convey and and so with that information in mind and having all the scene having all the scenes to work from you know it was kind of like you know putting the piece you know filling out uh throwing you know putting putting all the pieces uh together or um you know flinging paint at a canvas yeah almost like almost like paint by numbers but you know the paint inside the inside the lines is uh not just solid colors or whatever it's but uh yeah i'm curious about uh, that actually because i I don't know if you'd have seen this um a video there's a a guy tony zoo he makes uh, every frame a painting they're amazing Mm -hmm. youtube you're aware of this he did one i think the last one he did actually was about modern film scores and how he argued that maybe the the use of temporary music is kind of why you're having less kind of um, iconic scores, or there has been less iconic scores in the past kind of twenty five years. 
like why, yeah, I think why Marvel movies don't have like Superman or Star Wars level themes. Yeah, I I um, think that uh, I think that when you work from temp scores, it sets up a certain baseline. Yeah, and it requires a certain out of the you know you have to kind of think independently about what you're doing to maybe try to subvert that scenario and i think i was very i tried to be very kind of cognizant of the situation when i was working from a temp score like i wanted to honor i wanted to respect what the music that i was you know pulling influence from but still do new stuff and i think that was difficult at times but fortunately for me uh the the difficult the most difficult aspects of that was actually trying to create new music based on old music of mine from fez because that there was a fair bit of fez in, in the temp score oh, um, weird. yeah weird. that was That's, pretty that makes sense but i suppose yeah. it was it was it was pretty difficult um you know all the other elements you know working from music by other artists was really inspiring for me and, and um you know i i tried as best i could to take into account those those choices you know uh, uh kind of distill down the the elements of those that made them effective and a lot of it had to do with just the general vibe like uh the the essence of it and then you know remember the adjective that um i kind of got from that and then forget everything else so that i could start fresh and come up with a new thing you know that's not going to be like hey this is like if you put these two side by side they're like the same tempo the same key the same you know what i mean and that's that's what that's what happens a lot um and I think that has a lot to do with composers who are, uh, you know, overworked, underpaid. Um, so they maybe don't have the creative bandwidth to, you know, maybe think outside the yeah. box. Or, you know, there's just there's some reason why this this happened. It might be uh, a scale thing as well. You know, the same as you were saying earlier, where, you know, there's a, a, a distance between what you're doing and what the creator is doing. There's a middleman that's kind of shifts the context somewhere. Well, and... Also, what happens, too, is that sometimes you're dealing with a director, whoever, who, you know, very much wants the original thing and they can't get it. Um, and so, you know, you, the composer might be put in this awkward position of having to try to please, you know, please the director, whoever. Uh, and also try not to, like, basically infringe on someone yeah. else's work. Uh, <laughs> it's not a, it's not a pleasant situation to be in. So are you going to do more? Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy the process? I'm working on another feature right now with the director of it follows. Oh, so amazing. It's been, uh, it's been interesting. It's a learning exp- Every time I work on a film, it's a, it's a learning experience for me. Um, and I, I, you're still working on like loads of games. Um, you did Hyperlight Drifter. Is that the most recent one? Hyperlight Drifter, Reigns. I did the audio direction oh, of course, yeah. Reigns. With, um, and uh, I have a game that I worked on called Beasts of Balance that I was talking about that's oh, okay. coming out. Should be coming out very shortly. Um, yeah, I, I reckon we've we've covered everything, Rich. Um, I can't think of anything else specific I wanted to mention. If you can, please do. Or just, I guess, just tell people, you know, where they can find your stuff online. Yeah, so I uh, you can check me out on my website, disaster.pizza. And uh, nice. I, I, have a, I have an extremely elaborate blog there that's just full of, chock full of uh, all sorts of stuff that I've done and writings about various topics and um, you can also follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is disasterpiece. 
Wonderful. It was, are you happy with that, Rich? Was that enjoyable? That was great, man. Thank you so much. Good. I'm, I'm pleased. I really enjoyed it.